This episode is sponsored by Test Shot Starfish. Test Shot Starfish is a creation of entertainment industry veterans Kyle Schember and Ryan Stite, producing music for space. They have scored a number of film documentaries and composed music for clients with space as a theme, including Yuri's Night, the annual multiple venue worldwide celebration of man's inaugural flight in space. The latest release, Music for Sleeping in Space, is an ambient collection for those dreaming of sleeping amongst the stars. Available on Spotify and all platforms, visit testshotstarfish.com. On this episode, we have Dr. Barry Sandrew. Barry began his career doing neuroscience research at Harvard University. He became an expert in imaging modalities for studying the brain, particularly in colorizing images to observe progression. At a medical conference, he was connected with some entrepreneurs who wanted to convert black and white films to color. Barry had developed a superior technology for it, so he launched a business and switched careers. Barry leveraged this expertise to create successful platforms in educational content, visual effects, and 3D conversion. A tireless innovator, he is the holder of 34 patents. He is now involved with a number of incubators and startups that are exploring the evolution of technology in entertainment. Barry, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, my pleasure. I noticed that you studied at the Valley Forge Military Academy uh, in a, for high school, um, and I'm very familiar with that part of the world. Did you grow up in Pennsylvania or near it, near Valley Forge? No, no, no. Um, uh, I, was, uh, I was a troubled kid. <laughs> and uh, my family had to get me out of uh, that environment. And what better place than a military school and probably wow. one of the best military schools uh, in the world. I mean, J.D. Salinger graduated from there. And uh, I mean, Schwarzenegger, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it's been not Schwarzenegger. Um, I can't remember the general, but it's Schwarzkopf. Uh, yeah. Hey, very good. Storm and Norman. <laughs> Norman. <laughs> no, it, it was a wonderful experience, and it turned my life around and turned the life around of a, a lot of people that I know. Really a wonderful school. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, were you uh, gravitating towards the sciences at that point, or even did, did neuroscience come up in your interest? That was, no, that was high school. Yeah. That was prep school. So, yeah. no, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. Okay. Uh, after so it was at Hartford that you really gravitated towards? It was the University of Hartford that really, really did it because, um, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do there either, but I, I, I uh, did a double major in biology and psychology, and I met some um, very remarkable people like uh, Bob, uh, Bob Carell, Dr. Bob Carell, who um, finally uh, taught me statistics after dropping out of that course three times. Okay. And... Um, uh, and he brought me in as a, a lab assistant um, in his uh, lab, his uh, neuroscience lab. And uh, it was called the, uh, the Laboratory of Diencephalic and Limbic uh, Neurophysiology. Okay. And it was studying HM, which is the most famous uh, neuroscience, neuroscience patient ever. It's a patient who, um, b- back then, the only way to study neuroscience really was to look at people with brain damage or to take animals and create brain damage right. uh, and then study what went, you know, what their brain was like. Well, it just so happens that uh, Bill Scoville, William Scoville, who is a very famous neurosur- neurosurgeon, uh, produced a, uh, a limb- limbectomy, basically took out the amygdala and hippocampus of this one patient on both sides to to eliminate his seizures he had seizures constantly all day long and he it completely eliminated his seizures wow. but the remarkable thing is that he lost all short-term memory completely all short-term memory wow so i mean you could you could talk to him you could be you could joke around with him whatever walk out out the door come back in he never saw you before you can tell him the same jokes you can save a lot of money on crossword puzzles and the whole thing, but I'm making a joke of it, but he joked about it himself. His name was HM. That was his, and he became uh, a, a remarkable study for the field of neuroscience. Wow. wow that's incredible. Anyway, what I was doing was I was, we were trying to do the same stuff in monkeys so we could actually study 
uh, how the brain functions in terms of short-term memory. Right. Well, phenomenal. Well, you continued on in that uh, path. You uh, earned your doctorate and uh, had a number of postdoctoral fellowships at prestigious uh, locations and, and found your way to Harvard and a staff neuroscientist position. Right. Um, so not only the limbic side, but also uh, I saw some uh, cardiac system uh, neuroscience uh, impact uh, studies. Well, that was done at uh, Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, where I did my NIH postdoc. Right. I did that under S.C. Wong, a very, very famous uh, uh, neuropharmacologist. Right. And um, uh, he was a great mentor, and I, I did a lot of work there. That was a two-year fellowship. And uh, then I went uh, directly to Harvard and took on a, a staff position there. You know, it's, um, I'm very, I'm very curious about, you know, you always had a significant transition in your career. Was there a passion? Uh, it's tempting to believe that there was a passion from youth about film and special effects and visual effects. Is that, is that the case, Barry? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an intellectual puzzle that you were looking to solve and you had the intellectual rigor to be able to come up with a solution? No, it wasn't quite like that. Um, basically, I was, um, I was doing basic neuro, uh, neuroscience, uh, again, uh, studying how the brain works and functionally in, in terms of neurochemistry, neurophysiology, neuroanatomy. Um, and I was studying uh, uh, the periaqueductal gray and, and, and pain mechanisms and and, and, and how uh, um, emotion and pain work together, that sort of thing. It was, it was, uh, it, I was doing some, some interesting, tech, interesting experiments and research, but I was also involved, I was fascinated with uh, medical imaging because when I was at, at Harvard, medical imaging was in its, its infancy, believe it or not. Um, everything was analog prior to this. Everything was x-rays. And... Because I was at Harvard and I was studying um, under Juan Tavares, one of the most famous uh, uh, neuroradiologists in the world, um, who was uh, he was uh, chairman of the department there. Um, uh, I was able to play with some of the the latest and greatest machines because Siemens and GE right. and all of these companies would send their 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 latest and greatest toys to us and we would play with them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, obviously we're doing serious research, but to a, to a scientist, that's play. Right. Right. Of course. Well, and I think PET was one of the modalities. Uh, P yeah. P positron emission tomography was one of them. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things that I did was, uh, I created a, uh, an animal model for epilepsy and I, I wanted to study the, the spread of epilepsy through the brain. Wow. And uh, positron emission tomography was a way to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, because you basically put a, a, a radioactive marker uh, into the system and then turn it on. And, and it's, it's, it shows the spread of glucose of, of activity through the brain right. during the paroxysmal, the, the seizure activity. So I was actually back into the limbic system, same as I started with. Uh, you put an electrode in there, and it creates a a, uh, a petite mal seizure, um, and uh, you can actually see see the spread of all the connections and all of that. So it, th those were pioneering days because uh, you know uh, digital wasn't digital was just happening. Yeah. The, you know, today we have digital X rays everywhere, but there were no digital X rays then. In fact, it, there was a, a stigma. Uh, against digital back then because there are so many dials you can move and play around with with digital x-rays if there's a, a false negative or something like that or, or even a false positive you can get a, a malpractice and they'll say did you did you turn that knob and did you turn it one quarter of a percent wow. because if you did you would have found that wow. so the the uh, liability were huge so i was studying all of that and really that's what led to colorization believe it or not. Yeah. Wow. Because I was using color um, to improve the diagnostic value of digital medical imaging. 
I was also involved in doing some really bizarre stuff back then in terms of taking these slices of pet and all of that and create and, and building a, a computer. I was trying to build a computer that would do reconstruction of these slices. Today, that's commonplace. But back then, nobody thought of it. Yes. And the idea was ultimately to get into um, uh, robotic neurosurgery. Uh, again, that was, that was uh, science fiction back then. Today, yeah. it's not science fiction. But, yeah. So I, I had all of these doing this kind of stuff. And um, one day, I was at the uh, Radiological Society of North America conference in Chicago. I went there every year. I saw the latest and greatest of ever, all of this imaging technology. And while I was there, I got a call from some entrepreneurs um, who, um, who I heard about. And they were reputable. Um, it, it, they were reputable in that they had a company. And on their board of directors uh, was Al Kasha, two-time two uh, Oscar winner for Best Musical. Right. Uh, Peter Engel, who's one of the most prolific NBC producers, and uh, Bernie Weissman, who who was COO of uh, uh, Desilu Studios. Right. So th they were reputable people. Yeah. And they said, you know, we 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 have Barry. We've had three failed attempts to produce a way of creating digital colorization. Today, there's an analog version which is basically a filter over a face and Shirley Temple's face looks like it's got a big orange halo around it <laughs> and it's getting very bad press. Everybody thinks it's horrible looking and all of that business, a whole bunch of creative rights stuff. And what we want to do is do it digitally because we know that digital will improve the technology and make it look like it's a like it was originally shot in color. And they were right. And they, 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 they came to me from some, uh, some academics who said you should look at medical imaging. Yeah. That's where the latest and greatest is happening. So they approached me and asked me if I could figure out a way to colorize black and white movies. And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying this because of ego, but it just so happens that it came to me like that. Amazing. And it came to me like that only because of all the experience I had had yeah. with digital medical imaging. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah I know it do that I'm making the same thing as I was doing over here you know <laughs> so so anyway um, I, I wrote him a white paper on how to do it and as an academic most academics don't realize that your ideas are worth something <laughs> they, 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 they think that okay well I got a good idea I'm gonna write it up and I'm gonna publish it okay you don't get any money for publishing right. so I gave him a white paper I said here this, this is how I would do it it was more of an ego thing and they looked at it and they said we think this would actually work. <laughs> would you come down to Austin and take a look at our latest uh, attempt to do this? And they had already had three failed attempts to actually do it. And so they, they, I was at, I was at uh, RSNA, Radiological Society of North America, Chicago. They said, come on down. I said, I don't have any clothes. I don't have anything. Don't worry. We'll get you a ticket. We'll bring you down here. We'll give you clothes. No problem. <laughs> so I went down there and, um, I watched, uh, I went into a, a studio and they had these very powerful computers and I saw a big screen and it was projected on there and it was a picture of the day the earth stood still. It was the, um, mm. it was, it was that silver uh, alien walking down the, down the ramp and uh, I, and they said, okay, let me, let's see what you got. Yeah. And they said, it's happening. I said, where? <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, it was like watching paint dry. It was, you know, line by line by line. And eventually, after about an hour, the color came through. Wow. So I explained to, to, to these entrepreneurs that, that brought me down there, I said, uh, you know, forget it, close it up. You're not going to succeed at this because you have to be able to do 180,000 of those in one movie. Yeah. <laughs> frame by frame. <laughs> So, so, so basically, they were using a computer graphics processing, and and I was looking at image processing. Yeah. Uh, basically, pseudo color. Right. And and today, the technology that I presented to them was so simple, so rudimentary, mm. but nobody had thought of it. Yeah. And one of the reasons they hadn't thought of it is because they go to software engineers, 
and software engineers, but their mindset is, okay, I'm going to create an algorithm that can do it all. Yeah. Right. And you can't do it all. You can't do it all because there's too much subjective stuff in colorizing black and white movies. There's, you know, you're going 24 frames a second and you don't know if that's a hand or whatever it is. You have to use your imagination. It's subjective. So, uh, so basically I said, no, it's gotta be a combination of, of human and machine. And I created a, and when I told them that, they stopped all their research. They, frankly, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Okay, nice. And I left my, but I left my, I took an ab, a leave of absence from, from Harvard, left my family back in Boston, came to San Diego. Oh, uh, yeah. I had to be close to a, a lower labor market, cheaper yeah. labor market. Yeah. So I, I figured I could open up something in Tijuana, which I did. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And so within four or five months, I had a, a you know, I found a, a, a machine vision uh, a, a computer and I modified that and wrote, had some algorithms written to actually do this. And it was a frame by frame process, brought in people from the neighborhood, just taught them, you know, how to, how to use this thing. And we had some demos and, um, uh, Sid Luft, who was the, the uh, uh, former uh, uh, manager of uh, Judy Garland and her husband, ex-husband, um, he gave me a whole bunch of her movies and television shows and all of that, and they're all black and white, and he knew that they were worth nothing in black and white, but they could mm. be worth something in color. By the way, that, that, I, I need to tell you that the reason why colorization is so important back then why it was so attractive to entrepreneurs is because if you colorize a black and white movie that's in public domain you own the colorized version oh yeah copyright brand new copyright for 75 years today it's 95 years so there's a there's a a, a, a very significant monetization yeah strategy there and economic so anyway, he, gave, he gave me a whole bunch of her television shows and we had a big press conference across from Universal Studios at the Milk Building, which no longer exists. And um, one of the most famous uh, publicists, he, he was really intrigued by all of this. And the press saw uh, uh, Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland, full color, no halos. And you can see the blue eyes of, of, of Sinatra. Wow. wow, this could actually work. Amazing. So that was the beginning. Okay. And so that launched uh, American Film Technologies. And yeah, yeah, in June, I was uh, uh, Republic Pictures gave me my first movie, which was Bells of St. Mary's. Okay. And I, I ramped up for, for doing that. Uh, I hired a whole bunch of people and got a whole bunch of machines. And it took me, I think we did the movie three times. Wow. Uh, before, right. But we made the date, November date, and it was uh, a huge success. That's great. And the entrepreneurs who had approached you, they were your partners in this entity and the, the backers. Yeah. And we went, we went public in, um, 80, 80, 87 when I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And $14 to 40. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Very impressive. Uh, and, uh, you had some amazing, uh, clients, um, uh, Turner entertainment, of course, was, uh, one of your largest. And then, um, Spielberg's first all digital animated feature. We're back yeah. at dinosaur story was one of your projects. Well, things, things picked up after I did, I, um, bells of St. Mary's, uh, they gave us, uh, sands of Iwo Jima and then, uh, um, uh, Ted Turner came down for the Super Bowl in San Diego that January. Wow. So, you know, in, in, in March of that year, I, uh, of the previous year, uh, I, I developed the technology. In June, we got the first movie, came out in November, and then uh, uh, Turner came down, wanted to see the studio, wanted to see what I was doing. So he came by. Uh, he, he looked at the, the demo, looked at Bells of St. Mary's, and he told his people, give them anything they want. So we got wow. 36 movies a year. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, and uh, this became a platform where your patent portfolio, I think, really began to, to grow. And uh, I saw that you have 34 
um, uh, currently. Uh, but in addition to the digital process for colorization, there was also some advancements in creating the first paperless animation system. Yeah. And then augmenting uh, the company's ink and paint system. Yeah, well, there was no ink and paint system. Um, the, the, <laughs> the only ink and paint system that existed that was, uh, that was uh, semi-automated was the CAP system, C-A-P-S. By that, Disney. Disney, exactly. Right. And that was the only one. And Pixar is the one who actually developed that. And it cost okay. them a fortune to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I developed some compositing technology that nobody had done before. Uh, and uh, and also so that that led into the whole visual effects thing and and uh, what we did was we well it started out with uh, uh goes west um, oh, sure which was Amblin and what happened was they had five minutes of uh, Fifle goes west that was not usable for the release they had some whole a whole bunch of problems with the the cells you know they're doing everything traditionally. Mm. And it was all milky. So they, they knew that I had some image processing uh, expertise. They gave me that five minutes. I uh, basically dissected everything, took everything apart, put it all back together again. And frankly, uh, and I've, I've used this before, obviously, I saved American Tail. And, uh, <laughs> but, but after that, um, Spielberg had us do uh, Wear Back, a dinosaur story. And what we did was we set up a studio in... Um, in London with the, with the people who did Roger Rabbit, all of the, the okay. old animators. And, um, and we did our, put our design station, our unique design station there. We had our people in, in, in Mexico actually doing fills, you know, rather than ink, rather than normal painting. So right. they, were, they were doing fills. Again, this is stuff that's commonplace today, but it wasn't back then. Yeah. And then it went to San Diego where we, we applied visual effects and put everything together to complete the movie. Amazing. So yeah, that was extraordinary process. Wow. Um, kudos. Um, share with us uh, about the transition from American film technologies to Lightspan. Oh, well in, uh, I think 93, um, the, uh, the chancellor of, uh, Dick Atkinson, chancellor of UCSD, who I'd known, um, uh, wanted to let me know about uh, Justin's Learning. Justin's is the company that makes all the class rings and the, and the yearbooks and all of that business. Oh, yeah. They also had uh, a, um, uh, a curriculum that they sold to to schools all over the country. Okay. And the CEO was leaving and he wanted to do something unique. This is before the internet. This is before yeah. the world, I mean, not before the internet, but before the World Wide Web. Yeah. And um, he... Uh, uh, so, but he wanted to create edutainment for kids, right. and so he brought me in for the uh, the entertainment part. Right. And I, I I built a studio, a traditional studio for him, and brought in some some uh, a, a animation writers. And we created an animation studio that produced about 150 CDs wow. um, or for the schools. Originally, we wanted to do this using the cables cable or telcos because right, right at that very moment uh, the table the cable companies and the telcos were fighting for the same territory they wanted your home right and they were talking about the the mystical 500 channel set-top box right. Right? and and which never really happened back then right. Right. Uh, again this is before the World Wide web and what I did was I um, I, I, I found a, a web TV a prototype and I, I introduced it to some of the, the schools in Chicago, some of the poorer schools in Chicago. I had all of the, um, the principals and uh, uh, school board looking at this thing, and it opened their eyes. I mean, God, uh, what, what a, a way of democratizing uh, the world. Yeah. All of a sudden, kids at home uh, could, could access all this information and everything. Yeah. They, they loved it. Um, unfortunately, Lightspan didn't love it because it was competitive. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and, wow. And, and, and there was a... Cannibalize their sales. Yeah. Right. And, and I heard things like, you'll never make money in the internet. <laughs> I swear to God. Uh, and, and, I, and surprisingly, these people who said that made a fortune 
uh, in the business and their biggest product ultimately turned out to be an online product. Wow. Well, and that, that uh, lifespan went public as well and then eventually got sold to uh, Plato Learning. That's uh, correct. Is that when you made your transition once it got sold? No, I, 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 I left long before that, actually. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of finished with, uh, with uh, academia and education, especially uh, uh, public education. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can understand. I mean, some of the <laughs> viewpoints that were being expressed to you, the myopia, I, I can imagine that got to be a little constraining. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's a, here's an organization that had a whole di- division that was lobbyists in Washington. Yeah. You know, so it tells you a lot about that particular industry. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so um, lay for us down the groundwork, Barry, about uh, Legend Films. Well, it started out Legend well, yeah, Legend Films. Uh, basically, I, I was a friend of mine, um, uh, Jeff Yap, who, um, who was president of Hollywood Video, okay, and then became a big executive at MTV, and he did a lot of stuff with Comcast and a whole bunch of things. He was very, very significant guy. Still is a very significant guy. Uh, very impressive. Um, he came to me and he was at Fox. He was president of Fox uh, Home Entertainment, uh, International Home Entertainment. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and he was the one who initially brought up the idea of doing the Shirley Temple home video uh, campaign. Okay. All the Shirley Temple movies, which was the most successful home entertainment campaign in history. Wow. So he understood that colorization and that the only reason it worked is because of colorization. So he understood the value of it. And he, he came to me and he said, Barry, now that you've developed all this digital technology, could you make it so that it's far superior than it was before? So that it looked real. And, you know, I obviously between the time I invented colorization and the time I, I was, uh, uh, you know, to year 2000 came around, uh, I'd been thinking about all the ways that I could improve on the process that I originally developed. Hmm. I said, sure. <laughs> yeah, the computers are stronger. I didn't even have a, a network back then. Wow. I used Bernoulli discs, Bernoulli discs. <laughs> thousands oh, wow. of discs at, Legend, at American Film Technologies. And they were all, they were all, um, uh, you know, coded and all of that right. barcoded. And um, so I was able to, to actually create technology machine vision technology that was semi-automated, still required a lot of subjective work, but I was able to create technology that, um, that looked photo real. Yeah. And now, rather, you know, before I had criticisms about it because, uh, you know, it was the quality and all of that business. People always, people always uh, compared us with the analog version, basically said it's the same thing, but it wasn't. But now I could actually do it in high definition and I could do it so it looks photo real. And now they were complaining, oh, now it looks so real, people will think that's the way it was originally shot. <laughs> Bingo, that's the way it should be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you get, you, get, you get movies like It's a Wonderful Life, which I had done three times. Wow. Uh, and, you know, kids, it, it, it becomes a staple for homes every Christmas. People want to watch yeah. It's a Wonderful Life, you know, and they just sit down, they watch it. They know the words to it. They, yeah, they've watched right. it so many times. And the kids come in, they watch this black and white thing, and they have to tolerate it. It's <laughs> just not, you know. But, but in color, uh, it, it made all the difference. And in fact, you know, all the Bailey kids, the, ki- the, the, ki- the, the kids that are in the movie, right. to Jimmy Stewart, uh, they're still alive. They're all around. Wow. And every Christmas, they have... Um, uh, they have seminars and all of that and talk about the old days during making the movie and what was Jimmy Stewart like and all of that. They're wonderful people. And when they saw my latest uh, version, which was in 2008, they loved it so much. They sent me uh, emails and everything. And they said, we don't show it in black and white anymore at our seminars. We show your version. And they made a pilgrimage to American fil- to uh, Legend Films to meet all of the artists and actually oh, that was wonderful. Yeah. That was great. Oh, superb. 
that's really fantastic um you uh basically converted uh i mean you did 100 films for the legend films library as a part of this uh of your activity there and also visual effects for known uh films uh famous films like the aviator scorsese's the aviator Scorsese came to me with The Aviator because, uh, and, and Rob Legato, who's his visual effects art uh, uh, supervisor, because they wanted to do uh, a, a whole intro scene of the premiere of Hell's Angels. Mm. And uh, all they had was stock footage, and it would have cost millions and millions of dollars to recreate that. Yeah. Uh, in the, even in visual effects to recreate it. So they took all, uh, all of the black and white footage that they had, and it was, you know, uh, was shot in cars and all of that business. And we stabilized it, we restored it, we colorized it, and we made it look like it would have looked if he had had to create it. Hmm. So he loved it. He thought it was, it was really a, a great effort. Amazing. And uh, HBO's Entourage, you also worked on. Yeah, Entourage was interesting. Uh, I think it was Queens Boulevard uh, when uh, they, they wanted to make this uh, film noir movie. Uh, and uh, and uh, the producer said, oh, no, that nobody's going to enjoy that. Nobody's going to watch that in film noir. We have to have it colorized. So I colorized they, they They came to me and they said, colorize it. So I colorized it and I made it look really good. And they said, no, that's not what we want. We don't want it to look good. This looks too good. People will think it was shot that way. We're going to make it look horrible. So, <laughs> so, wow. so I had to have my artists uh, actually, uh, you know, mess it up and make it look like a stupid, really bad colorized movie. Wow. It's creative. Wow, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so when did you start thinking about uh, 3D conversion? Oh, um, a friend of mine, Greg Passmore is... Uh, a unique individual, probably one of the most unique people I've, I've ever known. Uh, on top of being one of the most brilliant software engineers that, that I've ever met, um, and physicists I've ever met, mm. um, he also is a, a an amazing photographer and cinematographer and stereographer. And he creates his own um, stereo rigs, which is not easy to do yeah. very complex to, to create them two cameras a mirror all of that stuff you know um and and uh he he did he made them because his passion is spelunking okay. he goes down into all over the world he goes down into these deep thousand foot caves i mean yeah. where you have to actually go straight down into these things right. and he wanted to bring these 3d cameras down there to actually shoot all of that <laughs> And, uh, you know, you just, you just can't do it. These things are half as big as a, as a Jeep. Right. And, and they're very fragile and all of that. So he came to me with a DLP uh, Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi 3D ready DLP television. First one I had ever seen. He said, Barry, I got to show you something. Brought it in. Huge, huge thing. And he brought it in, and then he, he, he gave me these stupid-looking glasses that looked like uh, from Benjamin Franklin days. Uh, <laughs> that was the early days, right? right? And he showed me some of the work he had done in 3D. Blew my mind. I had wow. never seen digital 3D. This was about 2006, 2007. And I said, oh, my God, this is the future. I can yeah. see this is the future of, 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 of movies. And he said, yeah, but here's the, here's the problem, Barry. I can't take my, these big cameras down into these caves. You know, he showed me a lot of underwater stuff that he had done through mm. at, at, uh, uh, aquariums and stuff like that. Really amazing stuff. But he says he can't bring them down these caves. He says, I want to shoot in 2D because I, I also do scuba divers with lights and stuff like that. So he can't do that. So what I want to do is do a conversion like you've done with colorization. I want you to be able to to convert 2D to 3D. And once again, idea came to me immediately, but I did some research and I found out that there was a guy who actually created a patent um, 25 years ago and, uh, that described how to do this in an analog format. Oh, interesting. And so I knew it could be done. 
Yeah. And then I, I, I recognized that, okay, I can work with Greg to actually create this thing. And we did. We, it was basically me, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to interrupt the rest of the uh, production because we were very, very busy at Legend Films at the time. So I basically, uh, weekends, nights, and whenever I had a chance and telling Greg, no, we need to do this or whatever. And eventually we, we got it to the point where it worked. And wow. we got uh, a Skittles commercial uh, for, uh, for theatrical. That was a stupid commercial. It should have never been in 3D. But I also won um, uh, Michael Jackson's This Is It tour. Oh, yes. Wow. Michael, now, Michael wanted to get a 90-foot screen, a 3D screen. Yeah. And he wanted to be performing in front of it. And it was going to be back projected in 3D. And it was uh, all ecology based. So I had, I had uh, movies of of horses and all kinds of animals and all of that business, really beautiful stuff. And he wanted, and it was all 2D. So I had to convert that to 3D, and I did, and it wow. turned out to be very, very good. But nobody ever saw it because, unfortunately, he died the day I delivered it. Oh um, my goodness! Well, I got paid. Sure, but but, but, but I would have I would have done it for nothing if it had been shown. If you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but 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 then the next month, uh, I got uh, I got a call from um, Sony Imageworks, um, uh, visual effects studio, 3D studio, whatever. Uh, th th I mean, a great studio, great people, and they said that they were doing uh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, okay. Disney. And they wanted to, they needed to convert it. And they had me do some samples and stuff like that. And they said, yeah, we, we'd like to hire you to do it. We want you to do 30 minutes of it. And I said, no, I'd much rather do, I'll tell you what, I'll do 25 minutes. We'll see what we can do. That's about all I, believe it or not, that extra five minutes was going to be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, we, I, we we produced it and they gave us the work the most difficult stuff because our technology was so was actually superior to what they had mm. so they, they uh they gave us the most difficult work i did i did uh, a good good amount of shots myself personally oh, okay. but um it came out and it, it was a big success oh, and everything just happened from there on you know then after then after that katzenberg called to do um trek one two and three Right. Because they had a deal with uh, Samsung. Samsung wanted to bundle uh, all of the Shreks with their new yeah. 3D television. Uh, yeah. Shrek 4 was shot, was, was actually created in 3D, okay. but Shrek 2 and 3 were 2D. 2D. So, and, they and they didn't have any other assets. They didn't have the backgrounds. They didn't have any of the characters or anything like that. Because if they did, since it was all CGI, they could have gone back and actually created 3D themselves. But they couldn't do that. So they had us start from scratch and, and do all three of them. Amazing. We did. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's really great. Now, let me ask, Barry, the um, facility in India, had that uh, started when you focused on 3D or was that from um, the, the colorization side of the business? That was, that was colorization. What happened was I, was I was starting up, I was reinventing colorization as I, mm -hmm. in two, around 1999. Okay. And... Um, and I was going to open up in Mexico again. And I was not thrilled with the facilities in Mexico at that particular point in time. And I got a call from, from a guy um, who I had known through some other associates who had a studio in, in Patna, Bihar, one of the poorest parts of India. Yeah. Um, most Indians won't go there. That's right. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's been all, even it's even been called the kidnap capital of the world. Yes. It happens to be it happens to be my favorite destination in the world. I Amazing. love that particular place. I love the people. So he, he called up and he said, "You know, we we were doing some colorization uh, uh, with some superior inferior technology. We did a uh, uh, a documentary uh, from World War II. And the people who did that stiffed us, did not mm. pay them doing it. Wow. And okay. so they, I mean, they said, we've got hundreds that were left high and dry. Barry, could you please come here and do it? I, I said, well, look, I said, Bajendra, what I'll do is I've got a movie. I've got day, uh, 
got um, uh, I, I've got a monster movie that I, I, I can give you. And um, Night of the Living Dead, that's what it was. Oh, sure, right. And I'll give it. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give you all the design. I'll, I'll give you. A, I'll mock up the color design, and see what you can do. And they came through. Nice. It came. It, really, it wasn't bad. And I gave him one more movie, and again, it wasn't bad. So I said, "Okay, you've you've, you've convinced me." So I, I went over there. I gutted the place with all of their old technology, put all my new technology in there. Wow. And uh, I, it was the best experience I had. The people were absolutely unbelievable. They All they wanted to do was please you. <laughs> and the artists were, uh, were very meticulous, you know, very meticulous. And I, I, I actually used them for 15 years until... Uh, I, I had left Legend. They they closed that down. Went to uh, 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 Punai, but I used them for 15 years, and we never had any downtime in that wow. 15 years. Wow! And I had it. I had the the uh, head count up to 800 people. Wow! Extraordinary. Yeah, great experience. Yeah, yeah. And so personally, um, as you've described this for me in the past, it's it's felt like you really got a lot out of your your visits there. Talk, talk to us about that. What what gave that that depth that meaning? You're getting me a little emotional now because I haven't been back in Tandy in what four years now, and I miss it. You know, India is a you probably India is the kind of place where when you're there, you're looking forward to getting back, but when you're here, <laughs> you really miss it. And I, and I really miss it now, especially uh, uh, Pudna, because uh, the the general managers of of the uh, studio was of the Singh family, and uh, the uh, uh, the patriarch uh, was a good friend of mine. Uh, we used to have, we used to take long walks and have great conversations. And the two boys, their two his two sons, were the ones who actually ran the place, and they were in, in their twenties, and they were like my own kids, but eventually they became colleagues. I mean, really good, good friends. Uh, and one of them, one of them uh, died uh, uh, several, several years ago. And I went over oh, goodness. for his funeral and everything. But um, uh, that family enriched my life more than anybody that I can imagine. Because I, I, I don't know what to say. It just India is a very, very special place. And I just love it. I mean, all with all of its flaws, everybody's got it, every country has its flaws, but I think the uh, the the benefits outweigh the flaws. Yeah, well, and um, the value of friendship is something that is really cherished um, mm -hmm. in yep. India, it, and uh, loyalty you know, was unbelievable. Yeah, we're told that um, guests are uh, holy; they are like God. And we have to honor and respect them in that same way. I see huge similarities between the Jewish culture and the Indian culture. Yes, it's true. Huge. And yeah. I think that may be one of the reasons why I feel so at home there. Okay. You know? People well, that Makes a lot of sense. Yes. Well, and this was actually a theme of when I was at university. My my Jewish roommate uh, friend and I would would talk about this, and especially when we would you know visit with each other's families. Um, there's certainly there's just an automatic. Yeah. Just we kind of knew how to behave and what to do, and exactly. uh, yeah, that was a, it was a real treat. Uh, that's fantastic. So. You mentioned about the decision to shut Legend down, and that happened in 2016. No, no, no. Legend, Legend didn't get shut down. I, I left Legend. I see. Okay. I, and uh, my son uh, Jared, who came in, might be Jared. Uh, it was a uh, uh, a very successful visual effects uh, artist um, prior to coming on to Legend uh, 3D. Um, that he um, was uh, very much in demand throughout the industry. And uh, I brought him in um, because uh, well, he, was, he, was, he was a very smart kid, and uh, I thought that he might be able to enhance the, uh, the company. And, in fact, he did. He pretty much uh, you know, took over to a large extent, uh, developed a lot of new technology. And uh, he... Uh, uh, when I, I, I left, when I left, he took over. 
Okay, good. Okay. And because uh, I wanted to get into augmented reality, virtual reality, and all of that, because I saw that as the next thing. I could see 3D was losing its luster, especially, yeah. with, especially with uh, CES, you know, right. um, failing uh, yeah. at, uh, at driving the home entertainment market in 3D. Right. So what I wanted to do was uh, look at the next, best, bi next big thing, yeah. and I saw that as uh, immersive technology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't do that while I was at Ledger. Right. And I, that's what I was going to comment on. It seemed like the interest in, in 3D was, was waning. Um, and let's chat more about uh, VR, because I also would like your take on uh, trends there. But, um, you know, you've dabbled in a few different areas. Um, Akashic VR, I, I noticed. Um, and then, um, you know, but you're also in terms of um, where you're spending your time and your expertise, uh, I see you're involved with uh, uh, an incubator accelerator, uh, Evo Nexus, um, also uh, advisor to groups like Magnify World and Immersive Hollywood. So share with us about the various things that, uh, that you're doing and where your interests lie at the moment. Well, I started with Evo Nexus when it was ComNexus uh, and uh, actually raised some capital for Legend um, through them. Oh, nice. Then it became Evo Nexus, and Evo Nexus was one of the most successful incubators in Southern California with um, uh, campuses in La Jolla, uh, Irvine, and um, Silicon Valley. Okay. Um, nice. They've had, uh, I think, $1.6 billion in, in uh, deal flow. Mm. Uh, they've, they've, they've got about 28 uh, uh, companies right now. Very good company, very good uh, incubator, and it's all volunteer. And I've been uh, a member, I, I was initially a board member and uh, I've been uh, the one of the longest seated uh, members of the uh, board of advisors uh, for the past uh, seven years, something okay. like that. Wow. Um, great experience. Um, I'm also a consultant at uh, Westcliff University great. in Oldman and we're trying to develop a, in a, um, an entrepreneurial center or an innovation center there right now. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've been involved with a lot. Oh, and also Ty, the Indus Entrepreneurs. Oh, uh, was, okay. Wow. I've been a member of, uh, of Ty for uh, five years. And I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm trying to bring them into uh, Westcliff University as a, a co-brand co uh, speaking uh, pr a program. But nice. um, you know, Ty is the largest uh, entrepreneurial organization in the world yes. uh, with, I, I think, uh, you know, 60 chapters in 17 or 18 countries. Yeah. So it's a remarkable uh, organization, and uh, uh, I've really enjoyed being part of that. Yeah, uh, the, I'm, profits. yeah I'm very familiar with them. I haven't been active with them uh, recently, but uh, maybe oh, now okay. there is a cause to, yeah. <laughs> to develop that more. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. So. Um, Within virtual reality, um, you know, share with us where do where do you think the best applications are uh, in that arena? Well, I think there's a lot of niche app, app niche app, uh, applications for virtual reality, but um, for the past um, oh five years, maybe six years, I've been I have not been a fan of virtual reality. Yeah, and what happened was I was on the the board of governors of a, an organization which will go nameless right now. Um, and uh, it, it involved a lot of the um, significant, most significant tech people in, in the entertainment industry, some of the CTOs and all of that. And there was one person um, who was uh, uh, an executive at uh, uh, one of these companies doing 360 cameras. Sure. And he was the focus of virtual reality because it was all brand new. And he stood up in front of this group of very important, significant people that I have a lot of respect for. And he said, you'll never have to worry about another display device again. Put your, throw your, your phone away, throw your television away. It's all going to be virtual reality. My eyes rolled up into my head, and as I watched all of these really intelligent people in that room, 
getting into lockstep with this guy. Wow. And I said, no, no. <laughs> I could see augmented reality being very hot. But augmented reality using mobile phones, smartphones, because it's collaborative. Exactly. You don't have to wear anything. That's right. uh, it, 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 it's magic. It looks like magic. I mean, you take a 360 of something, you know, a 360 video of something, um, and that's pretty cool. And you look around with your phone and, and it, at 360, you know, and, it, and you can see everything. It's really neat, but it's not magic. Yeah. But you put that, you put that into a portal right here, an, an augmented reality portal. Yes. And you, you can walk into that and yeah. then see this. Yeah. Magic. That's extraordinary. So, so the thing is that, that there, there, I, I could see, I could see augmented reality becoming ubiquitous, actually not mixed, not augmented reality, mixed, mixed reality, reality becoming, yeah. becoming ubiquitous, ubiquitous. It's inescapable. It's going to be, it's going to be the future. Yeah. Is it going to replace everything? No, no. Um, sure. Are there going to be glasses? Yeah. There's going to be glasses eventually that can produce all of this stuff, but this is going to be the preferred method for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And and it, it's fine. Remember when people would say, nobody's going to watch a movie on that. Everybody watches <laughs> movies right. on that. Well, uh, it's been an extraordinary career you've had, uh, Barry. And I just, I, I love um, examples of where we can apply the teachings in one discipline to another. Just historically, I've always been fascinated by that. And, and you're, you've done that brilliantly uh, throughout your career. And you've done some really amazing things. And well, you're not done yet, by far. <laughs> Yeah, no, we'll have to do this again once my uh, my book comes out. Fantastic! That would be really great. What's your timing on that? Uh, it's probably going to be next year. I already have a uh, a publisher, and uh, yeah, and it, it's it's fiction. Nice. Oh, brilliant! Based on real events. Okay. Okay. Well, I really look forward to that, and we certainly will do this again. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.